Well, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 20 is where we're going to be spending uh, the majority of our time this morning. And if you've been here uh, over the last month or so, a few months, uh, we've been studying this book of 1 Corinthians, studying particularly the life of the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to, which uh, we've talked about as a young church, not necessarily in age, but in the fact that they're very young in Christ, uh, newly converted folks. They're living in a port city, so a city where there's a lot of commerce going on, a lot of different uh, people coming and going. It's a melding pot of a lot of different religions and cultures was Corinth. And um, we've specifically, we've talked about this term, uh, it was a term in Greek uh, language at that time, that if you were really uh, sexually loose or crazy or uh, just out of control, uh, that there was actually the term, you were a Corinthianizer. This is how sexually charged this city was. Uh, And it was full of worship of many different gods, um, and it was a pretty wide open place. Um, Maybe the Las Vegas of the day. And we're Nash Vegas, so we're just slowly behind Las Vegas. Um, But Paul's writing them because he's concerned for them. He's concerned for this young church, in particular, that they're becoming divided in some specific ways. And he's really fighting for this, and we've been talking about this, that he's fighting for their unity. He's saying that the unity of the whole is very, very, very important, not just for the health of the actual body, but even for the people who are looking at the Christians in Corinth and saying, okay, so what's different about the fact that you're a believer? So unity is a big issue. Randy started a few weeks ago with this topic of sexual immorality. It starts in chapter 5 where Paul is addressing this young man who has now somehow found himself into a relationship with his father's wife which uh, Randy started to say and unpack that this is pretty crazy. Like how, how bad do things have to get to where a man is having a sexual relationship with his father's wife? We're going to dive back into that this morning, not specifically that text, but Paul brings it back around. But Randy began to unpack this, and Joel talked about it a little bit last week, and I'm going to kind of get us moving in this direction. And this idea that now that you're in Christ that God has a new rhythm for your life. It's a term that Randy's used quite a few times in the last few sermons. And it's different from the rhythm of the world. Joel looked at this specific rhythm through the issue of conflict and how we enter into it and engage one another as believers and that we we, we approach conflict from a completely different vantage point. We have a completely different rhythm to how we walk in relationship with one another, specifically in conflict, as a result of what's happened for us in Christ. Joel referred to it as those who sing a new tune or a different tune in a strange land. you remember this? Well, really, and I'm going to kind of take a hard right turn on this. Really, when we're talking about rhythm and we're talking about a new tune, which are good ways to talk about it, we're, we're really talking about obedience, which is a far less palatable term, one that we kind of shrink from. It's really at the heart of the issue that we're going to look at today. We struggle with the concept of obedience. Why? I believe it's primarily 
Because we believe that we should be able to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, what's good for us, what's best for my life. God, you may have a rhythm for my life, you may have a tune that you want me to sing, but ultimately, I kind of sit in the driver's seat, I want to call the shots about what's best for my life. Tim Keller in his book, Reasons for God, says this about our kind of cultural perspective on freedom. Freedom to determine my own moral standards is considered a necessity for being fully human. That I actually have to have that freedom in order to actually feel fully human. Well, the problem with this line of thinking, and it's in the scripture that we read, maybe you can throw that scripture back up if you want. Actually, you can't throw it all up because it's not all in one. Never mind. The problem with this line of thinking is that if you're in Christ this morning, what we read this morning, or Marissa read this morning, clearly states in this passage that you are not your own. That is to say that if you have the Holy Spirit as a deposit and guarantee, if you're in Christ this morning, that if he's put his spirit inside of you, he has plans for your body. He has plans for your actions. He has a rhythm for your life. And that your life is not your own, and therefore you don't have that right any longer to call those shots. Freedom takes on an entirely different scope, and we'll talk about that this morning. Randy talked about this a couple sermons ago when he talked about holy living. David Pryor, in his commentary on this passage, says this. It says, obedience for the Christian body is an activity. God doesn't address us purely as minds or emotions or wills, but as people with bodies. His concern is not for abstract acts like adultery in theory or immorality in theory, but his concern is for the whole person who does those actions. So we're kind of going to kind of drive at this this morning. The somewhat singular question that Paul is coming at He's coming at it in this book from a variety of angles, different angles, sex, conflict, money, marriage. It's striking at the Corinthian church's fundamental understanding of what has happened for you now that you are in Christ. It's this question, how should we live as a body of people? What should be the outward manifestations of this inward transformation that's happened for us in spirit? Does God really care? Like, does God, in fact, actually care about the outward, the body? And maybe more poignantly, and I think I'm inviting us into asking this question, do I care? I mean, not not kind of pretend, because it's easy to pretend in church, but do I actually care in the ebb and flow flow of my life what God has to say about how I live my life right now? Does he have a rhythm, or do is it mine to decide? So, um, yeah, wow, sorry. There's going to be pauses in this sermon, just to prepare you. Most of us believe that he does have a rhythm, and I believe Scripture teaches it. If you go, if you got your Bible open to that passage in 1 Corinthians, go back a few verses, and we can't spend a lot of time in this, but I'm just going to show you this. This is verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's a massive list. And that list, we do not have time to even unpack all the Greek words that represent all of those different terms. What I want to get you thinking along the lines is this, is that when we talk about God's rhythm for your life, what Paul is talking about, he's talking about the kingdom of God. And he's saying here that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about simply, because we kind of take that term kingdom of God and we put it in a future sense. We, we, we refer to that as though we're talking about heaven. But if you study the term kingdom of God throughout the scriptures, it's a lot in the gospels. The kingdom of God is not something that we're necessarily waiting for. There's an aspect of that that's true, the second coming of Christ. But the kingdom of God is something that has been inaugurated. It has started with the death and resurrection of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Like if you're rich, and some of you are in this room, um, if you're a rich kid, uh, you're not waiting to live. You're not waiting, sorry, you're not waiting for your family to die in order for you to start living in the inheritance of the wealth of your family. Isn't that true? The inheritance is not just referring to the fact of something that is to come. It's talking about the fact that the kingdom of God is present now. The kingdom of God has parameters now. It has ethics now. It has a feel now. And this kingdom is advancing here on earth. It's already started. Eternity has already begun, is what he's saying. And he's saying if any of these things on this list, if these things are the dominant characteristics of your life, if you have no sense of conviction about any of these things, which we're all on this list, we have a great, wonderful ability to create all this hierarchy when it comes to sex. Sex is this untouchable thing that's outside, but you know, greed, me being someone who's just committed to money at all costs, that's kind of a lesser thing in God's eyes. No, it's not. It's not. Paul is leveling the playing field here, and he's saying the kingdom of God if you are in Christ, this is the rhythm for your life. You should be walking in the inheritance that is already yours. You're not waiting for something. You're not waiting for heaven. It's started. It's begun. This is what it should look like. All right. So this morning we're going to dive into this issue of sexual immorality that was facing this church. And I realize that any time we talk in Midtown or anywhere, anybody talks about such a sensitive topic as sex, there's a ton of emotion that's attached to this. There's a ton of this that's incredibly personal. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of regret. There's a lot of systems of thought this is an incredibly hot topic in our culture. And this morning, I'm just going to tell you that there is an absolutely no way I'm going to be able to just kind of wrap this up in a bow, and you will leave without any questions and or any tensions in your heart about what I'm about to say, um, and that's not my goal. We can't cover all the nuances of this, uh, but that said, I do believe Paul gives us some definitive direction uh, in this portion of Scripture concerning sex, concerning sexual immorality. 
And I'll say this, he puts forth, and this is really the thrust of what we're getting at this morning. He puts forth this enormously high and sacred view of sex. One that I would dare to say that even in most marriages, people rarely are conceiving remotely the significance of what's going on. He puts forth this very high, very sacred view, and we need to talk about it. All right, so let's go to the text. First thing that we see is Paul putting his finger on a couple important things. And I really would encourage you to engage me here because if you don't engage me at this point, it's not going to sing. The rest of this isn't going to sing the way it could to you. Paul is putting his finger on how the Corinthians, these young Corinthian believers, are making their decisions. And again, it's not just about sex. It's about many things. He's exposing their logic behind their license. License in that what I'm free to do. You get a license, you're free to drive a car. And he's showing that it isn't consistent with this new rhythm of life in Christ. That the behavior, that the actions are not an outflowing of the correct mindset or perspective of someone who's in Christ now. And we have to acknowledge that, just that from, from first off. Do you... Are you willing to believe or engage with this concept that it's actually what you believe or you hold to be true that ultimately affects how you behave, how you move and groove? What are the arguments and lines of thinking that he's kind of pulling out here? Well, the first thing is this, and this is in verse 12. Sorry. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Notice that everything is permissible for me is in quotes. Paul is quoting a term, a phrase, a slogan, a creed, a logic that the Corinthian church is using as he's hearing it going around the people. And this argument and this logic is that as a result of what has happened for us in Christ, that it is by grace and not by works that you and I have been saved. They had embraced that, which is true. That as a result of that truth, it does not matter what we do from now on. That what's happened for us in spirit is what's important. What happens with the body is secondary or even possibly irrelevant. God doesn't really care. This was a popular thought in Greek culture, and I think it's a popular thought even currently today. The spirit is what's important. The body, not so important. Not as big of a deal. Come on, man. Christ has set me free from the law, right? So what's it matter? Well, Paul, if you read other places in Scripture, makes it really clear that taking that line of thinking is not okay. It's not consistent with the kingdom of God. I would encourage you to go back, read through Romans 6 through 8. I'm just going to give you a few things from those passages. Romans 8, 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So we have been set free from the law of sin and death. Well, free to what? Well, we know not free to what, but free what to not. And that is to not do whatever it is that we like. He says that earlier in Romans 6.1. 
what shen, or what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. So, I'm not giving you this grace as a license to continue in your sinful patterns, to continue sinning. I have set you free that you may live a new life. Well, so what is he talking about? Romans 7, 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you, may not, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So not only are we set free from the law of sin and death, and that his grace has done that, but he set us free to move us in a new direction, into this new life. And he says clearly here in Romans 7 that that is to bear fruit unto God, which we don't have time to unpack this morning. And it's not even my purpose to do that. It's more to help you see that, don't you see he's changing the direction? He's saying, I have a plan for you. I have a rhythm for you. Let's go this way. This is why I've done this. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says that the Corinthians were turning the pretext of Christian liberty, the pretext of Christian liberty being grace, faith, grace by faith, you know, that Christ has done something for us by grace. They've taken the pretext and they're using it and allowing themselves to do almost anything at all. This is important. I need to take a drink here. Paul is saying something very, very, very huge here. That yes, everything is permissible. It's true. That you no longer live under the law. That there is, as we say, we found other places in Scripture, that there's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of Christ Jesus. But that is not the point. You're using the pretext in order to allow yourself to do whatever you want when you're saying that. He's saying that this is not beneficial for you now. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Yes, it is true that there is nothing. If you are in Christ this morning, there is nothing you can do to undo that. But that's not the point. That's not what Paul's talking about whether or not you are in Christ. He's talking about that now you, that you are in Christ, what is this new rhythm for your life? And Paul is saying clearly here, you're not your own. You belong to a new kingdom. Not one that is to come, simply to come, but one that has already begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are the displayers of this new kingdom of God, its ethics, its ways, its fruit. We are the trees upon which that fruit hangs, and we feed off of, and the other people in this world come and feed off of. The purveyors of a new kingdom. When you and I do 
non-beneficial things, things that are outside of the rhythm of God for our lives. And we pass those things off because they're permissible due to God's grace. Paul warns us very clearly that those things that you are supposedly doing because of your freedom will end up mastering you. He says that right there when he says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. They'll end up reigning in your life. You will not be free, but you will be under their control. They will have the position in your life that is solely intended for God alone. This is really hard for us. We deny all the time and we believe so strongly in our ability that we can keep everything in our life under control, that our lives lead us to believe that we can kind of perpetuate this, that everything's okay. Okay, it's permissible. I can do this. I can keep it under control. It won't control me. But if we just study, I mean, we could unpack a hundred different ideas right now this morning. No one can stand up here and say that that's true. Even if we just simply look at the issue of pornography and the privacy and the privatism on the internet. Out of control. He's saying it's not beneficial for you. It's not an issue of whether you're saved or not. It's an issue of, are you walking in the ethic of the new kingdom now? This is not good for you. So why do we do this? Why do you think we do it? I'll tell you why I want to do it. I want it both ways. I kind of want both ways. I want my freedom but I also want God's unconditional love. I want his love, but I don't want to have to give up anything else that I love. I want Jesus to free me from the law of sin and death, but then I want to have complete freedom to make unaccountable decisions from that point on, unaccountable to him and unaccountable to everyone else. I want it both ways. The second argument that we see Paul kind of digging into is in verse 13 where he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, which is basically saying this, if you're hungry, you should eat. If you have a feeling of hunger, if you have the appetite, if you have a desire for something, then that's what's telling you you should have that thing. This is a very rudimentary understanding of our feelings and cravings, but it's one that is remarkably prevalent in our current climate. This is one I see probably most people using to license doing whatever it is that they want to do. I just feel so strongly about this that how could I not do it? That if I have an appetite for something, that that must be the indicator that I'm supposed to act on that appetite with whatever it is that I find to fix or attach that desire to. 
So a way we would turn this phrase, a way we would understand him using this phrase in this issue of sex is saying, sex for the body's sexual impulses and the sexual impulses for sex. Sex is for the body and the body for sex. That's all it is. No big deal. Sex is no big deal. And what we're getting at here is is that my appetite or my feelings or my desires, these are the only things that drive my decision making. Well, I think we're having, uh, we're walking in some very dangerous water here when this is, in fact, the way that we make decisions. And I think it's because we're making a massive assumption that every single one of us in this room make, and we don't just make it in the area of sex, we make it in all these other areas, food, drink, money, power. And it's this, that I have the ability not only to understand my deepest desires, you and I actually believe that, that when I crave something or when I want something or when I desire something, we actually believe that I have the capacity in within myself to understand that desire in its entirety. I know what that's about. Do you? I think Paul's inviting us in this passage to say, you have no idea what your desire for sex is about. It's so much bigger. It's so much grander than anything you could even remotely conceive. So not only do we assume that we understand it, but we're confident in our ability to identify the correct object to satisfy it. Not only do I know it, but I know what I'm supposed to do with it. Two massive assumptions that you make and that I make when Ecclesiastes makes it clear that he set eternity in my heart and that I can't even begin to fathom what that's about. It goes this far, I believe, for us, that I have such a high fidelity to my desires and to my emotions that I actually feel like I'm betraying myself to not act on those things. I'm doing a betrayal to myself to not follow through. I hear people talk about it like this. I'm being fake. I'm not being real. I'm being disingenuous. To not explore and act on such inclinations. But this breaks down. You take it outside of this topic of sex. Let's just talk about like road rage, for example. You take that line of logic. If I feel a certain thing, then that's completely giving me license to do it. Most of us have had the experience of feeling like We want to destroy somebody while driving our vehicle. You know, you want to turn the highway into like the Matrix highway scene where things are just exploding. But we don't do it. Why don't you do it? Because you know somewhere inside of you that that's not okay. That just because I feel that doesn't give me license to drive my car and T-bone somebody off of a bridge. You just, you can't do that. But this is what we're doing in this area. And it's what we do in many areas. It's amazing. You're going to have to do some own examination of your own heart to know where am I taking lines of logic that they break down in these other areas of my life. I kind of hold them to be really true in this area, but then I just completely create a relativist perspective over here. It's inconsistent. I want it both ways. I don't want anybody to wreck me off the the interstate bridge, but hey, dude, don't tell me what to do with my money. Don't tell me what to do sexually. It works really well with this first argument, everything is permissible. 
Everything's permissible. I'm free. I'm no longer under the law. And therefore, my freedom should be used and exercised in exploring all of my appetites. Because the satisfaction of those desires, that's where I'll find meaning. I will find rest. I will find a sense of who I am. I will find the purpose of my existence. I will find true love. Well, Paul is saying something massive here in the rest of this text. That we've made a massive assumption about what's truly beneficial for you and I. And about your and my understanding of our desires and appetites. About this rhythm that he has for us. About the kingdom of God in present form. So let's go back to the rest of the text. Verses 13 through 17. And Paul is setting forth a picture here. Or context by which we should now understand ourselves as the body of Christ. That is to say that if you are in Christ this morning, this is how you should perceive yourself. And in particular, in this area of sex. Now, we could probably take 10 sermons on each one of these sentences. Not kidding. These are like juggernauts of truth. But we're going to touch on a few themes that I think that they kind of draw together. And the first one is this, right there in verse, the end of verse 13. You were not created for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Paul is setting forth one of the new rhythms of the new kingdom. One that is clearly saying this, the body does matter. Your body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So high value of body, not like the Greek culture, not like our culture. He even says there in verse 14, by the power God raised the Lord from the dead, he will raise us also. So it's not just present that he's talking about because he's warning them against this prostitution that's going on here and the decay that it's causing within the community. But he's talking about the future too. So again, kingdom of God is present Already and not yet. We're awaiting something, a final consummation of something. And we'll talk about that in a second. He doesn't say anything negative about sex in here. Rather that sex does in fact have bounds. And that God's design is what we would exercise ourselves sexually within those parameters. I'm tempted to talk about something. Hmm. Do it. This resurrection thing that he's talking about. I would encourage you to write down this passage, Romans 19. I don't want to drive this point home too soon. Romans 19, 6. Or sorry, sorry, not Romans. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. It's a passage that's familiarly known as the wedding feast of the Lamb, the bride of Christ being presented to Christ at the end time. And it's a beautiful picture of, for those of us who are in Christ this morning, of what's going to happen for us when we're united with Christ. And it's seen and pictured as a wedding. 
He says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the sound of pearls and thunder shouting, hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. Christ's wedding to us, the church, has come. This is what we're waiting for. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. It was given to us. We were clothed with his righteousness. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who, invite, who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, These are the true words of God. We're waiting for something. And we're going to talk about this in a second. This is why it's so important. The body is so important right now. Because something is going to happen for us in the future. So, he says that the body's not meant for sexual immorality. And this begs the question, what is sexual immorality? Well, the Greek word for immorality is porneia here. It means any illicit or, or illegal sexual intercourse how do we determine what the scriptures see as illicit or illegal or not within the rhythm of God or not befitting the kingdom of God? Well, later in this passage, Paul refers to this. He says, uh, down there in verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. If you've ever been to a wedding, maybe heard this. This is a quote from Genesis way back in the creation account. The man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife and they will become one flesh. If you go to the next chapter, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, you'll find that Paul is saying it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Exercise that sexual desire within the context of marriage. So sexual immorality, a biblical understanding of this, is anything other than sex within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. That Paul is referencing Genesis 2, united before one flesh. Don't miss this. This is presuming a sequence that man leaves his father and mother, the most significant relationship, especially in this culture, sense of identity. Abandon that relationship. Leave your father and mother. Then unite, cleave, and then become one flesh. That there is a permanent commitment, a sacred covenant that is made between a man and a woman in here that precedes this one flesh experience. You see how high this view is? And we're beginning to see the root of the problem that Paul is trying to expose here, that in experimenting sexually outside of this marriage covenant, that the Corinthian church, through this prostitution issue, was separating the body and the spirit. They're saying what's happened for us is the spirit is what is important. What we do with our body is not important. He's saying, no, 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 hold on, whoa, stop. We're not talking about in Christ right now. We're talking about what's beneficial for you, and this is not okay. This is not good for you. They were doing things physically 
that were inconsistent with who they were as members of the body of Christ. So that takes us to the next thing. No sexual immorality. What is he talking about here when he says, do you not know that you are members of Christ himself? He, goes, he says that in verse 13. In verse 17, he says that we are one with Christ in spirit. He goes on in verse 19 to say that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to dive into each one of these, but all of these metaphors, they have you know, their own unique theological emphasis, but they share a common theme, and it's summed up at the end of verse 19. You are not your own. You're, you're a member of Christ. You're an arm. You're a part of his body now. We are one with him in spirit. That's something supernatural, something that we would take 100 years to probably explain. Something supernaturally has happened, and you are united with Christ in spirit. Like two pieces of paper that have been glued together, you cannot pull apart. That you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple in the Old Testament and the Jewish culture. This would be the place, the, the most fundamentally abiding place of God. And this is, he has made us into his temple. He's put his spirit inside of us. He's saying you're never alone. You never, ever, if you are in Christ, will ever make an independent decision ever again because you're not alone. He's with you. He's in you. This is a particularly difficult concept for us to embrace as Western Americans. We value freedom at all costs. But we have to at least inquire and ask ourselves this question. Is my definition of freedom, my functional definition of freedom, is it a biblical one? A secular understanding of freedom, and I'm sad to say that I believe we're actually more in this camp most days, is the ability to do whatever I want. That is freedom. I'm free to do what I want. Whenever I want, no limitations. Biblical freedom is a completely inverted concept. It's a greater freedom. The freedom to not do something. The freedom to see something you desire and say, no, that's not good for me. What's a greater freedom? The freedom to pick it up and to do it? Or the freedom to deny yourself the thing that you maybe want to act on? It's a greater freedom. Keller, who says things brilliantly in Reasons for God, says, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions, but the finding of right ones. The liberating restrictions, those that fit with our, within the reality of our nature and the world to produce greater power and scope for our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfillment. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the finding of the right ones, the liberating restrictions. Many of you and I have been watching the basketball tournament, I'm assuming. How's everyone's bracket? Um... A basketball court creates the bounds for the game to be played. Height of the rim, backboard, parameter of the playing field. 
Without such restrictions, the game would not be more free. In fact, it would be less enjoyable. It would be unintelligible. What if someone could go slam dunk the ball into the seats and that counted for something? I mean, we wouldn't even know what to do with it. It's actually the boundaries that give the game its sense of meaning. It's the boundaries that create the meaning. It creates the beauty, the freedom of expression. Marriage is the boundary. It's the court for sex. Within that court, in the context of that commitment, that sacred covenant, you are free to express yourself. Go for it. But we're not free to play outside that because that's not consistent with the rhythm that he set for us. The third thing is this, and we'll kind of bring this to a head. It's towards the very end there in this passage. It says, where it says, you're not your own, this is verse 20, it says, you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is really where it gets sweet, y'all. Man. People were paying money for prostitutes. That's what a prostitute was in that day, just like it would be in, in today's culture. They were paying money for sex. It's interesting that Paul uses this term because he says, you are bought. Israel, throughout the Old Testament, in many different places we could go, was the unfaithful one, the adulterous bride. You see, we were the prostitutes. We were the ones that were enslaved to sin, the unclean that he talks about there in 9 through 11. He says, and that's what some of you were in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We were those who were enslaved, and he didn't just buy us from slavery and say, okay, now you're not a slave, you can kind of hang out in my house. He bought us to be a bride, y'all. He bought us to be the bride. Jesus' blood was the thing that paid that price. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. And you've probably heard of this. This is in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about the fact that he's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal or as a deposit. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. It says, now it is God who makes, us, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us. He has set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, a guarantee of what is to come. This is hard for us. We are in an instant gratification culture. He is saying, he said, something's already begun, but it's not going to be brought into full consummation until Christ returns 
So you're living in the already and the not yet. And I'm not going to say that there's not tension in that, that there's not pain in that. But he's saying there's something to come and I've given you the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we groan as a result of this, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. He says that he's done this so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by what is life. Isn't that interesting? We consider this life. He's saying, no, 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 this is mortality. I want to swallow up mortality and what is truly life. And he says that he's made us for this purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, a guarantee of what is to come. The redemption of our bodies. The experience of oneness that we are longing for that we can only have with the Lord. Sex is not just a physical act between two people. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, everything is permissible for me. That's such a small view of sex. Can you have fun? Can it feel good? Is it going to affect your eternal destiny? It's not what we're talking about. He's saying, understand the massive sacredness of what's going on. It's a profoundly spiritual act that is a foretaste of our physical and spiritual union with Christ. It's a foretaste. You're just getting a taste of it. What we're having in spirit right now, we're just getting a taste of what it's going to be like to be in the presence of Christ. When you have sex within the context of marriage, you're just getting a taste of what it's going to be like to be in the physical presence of Jesus Christ for eternity. Is it possible that everything we do in this life is just a foretaste? This is not the end game. You're just tasting what's to come. And so how you taste it is important. Because it will radically shape your perspective on what's to come. It's the physical expression of a supernatural reality that has already begun for us in spirit and we await for it in body. You're engaged. Whether you're single in here, whether you're married in here, you're engaged. That Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring on your finger. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, not just waiting for a party where we can worship Him. He waits for His bride, which He calls us, and He's clothed us for it in His blood and forgiveness and grace. And He's saying, I'm waiting for you. Wait for me. You ever met somebody who's engaged? Oof. They got the itch, don't they? The anticipation of physically acting on what they've committed to in spirit already. They can't wait to get to that wedding day. Just study somebody at the reception. <laughs> study the guy. Sex by design is the final step in completely giving yourself entirely to someone else. This is why it requires oneness. 
If you are unwilling to give yourself entirely to someone forever within the covenant of marriage, just like Christ has covenanted with you and I, you can't just separate the body from the spirit. It's a spiritual, physical act. We can't have intimacy without intention. We can't have communion without commitment. So what do we do with all this? This will be really simple. Well, the first thing I'd encourage you to do is to examine your heart. What lines of thinking or logics or creeds or slogans, everything is beneficial, food for the stomach, or perspectives are you using, functionally using, to continue to propagate the actions that you know are inconsistent with the rhythm of God for your life? We've all got them. And we're all just like the road rage example. We're all kind of applying them in certain areas and completely denying their validity in others. So join the crowd. But I invite you to get out a shovel and start digging. Ask the Holy Spirit, help me see where am I creating these lines of thinking that are inconsistent with this rhythm in order to license myself to do basically whatever the heck I want to do. That's the first thing I'd encourage you to do. The second thing is this. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. It makes me think of like haunted movies. When you know something that is trying to destroy you is coming after you, what do you do? You run. We we have this kind of amazing propensity to kind of keep these very dangerous things like very close to us because we believe we have control in our lives. I kind of kind of keep this little this thing over here because I, I can kind of keep it in a box. I can keep it under wraps. It's not going to destroy me. Paul's saying flee. And I could give you a hundred examples of what this may be, but it's definitely not walking away at a slow pace. It's not making compromises. Like okay, okay, I'll just well, I'll just kind of take a slow step this direction. And I encourage you that. It really could be, a step in this could be tell someone that you flee by fleeing your isolation. This is an issue, sex, is a topic that is incredibly, it's considered very private in our culture. Something you don't talk about, it's a ton of shame attached to it. How you flee is you invite someone else into it. You go to someone and say, This is the reality of my life right now. Will you walk in this with me? Because I believe that I'm a part of a greater body. I believe that how I manage myself sexually affects all of you. We we flee and we flee to one another. Let me just say that if someone does that for you, if someone lets you into that place in your life, that's a high, high, high responsibility that you have been given. You need to be very careful. You need to go read verses 9 through 11 and realize that whatever they've just shared with you, you've got that in you too, whether it's in greed or something else. And God is not about creating hierarchies of sin. So you walk into that with your brother or sister with humility, with gentleness, and with your own sin. Pull the plank out of your own eye. 
So we examine, we flee, and then the third thing is this. Plan your wedding. Start planning your wedding. Fleeing to something or fleeing something is always more compelling when you're moving towards something else. Have you ever met a bride who's in the next or the last six months? What is she thinking about? Nothing but her wedding. Ugh, I'm kidding. Oh, y'all, y'all people got friends getting married, and you're like, oh, man, I'm so sick of her talking about it. Well, she is talking about it because she's thinking about one thing, her wedding day. You build anticipation of your union with Christ by growing in the reality that you're engaged. Plan your wedding. Get on the phone with your groom. Meet with him, talk with him, be with him. Build the anticipation. If you're married, exercise yourself sexually within the context of your marriage and build the physical anticipation of that supernatural reality. Hebrews 12, and we'll close with this, charges us this. It says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, throw off everything that hinders us. All of these different logics and ethics and things that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God, the rhythm for his life, the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Run with perseverance? Wait. Build anticipation for your husband, Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on him. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne and he awaits you. Let's pray. Lord, this is heavy duty. It's hard for us to even remotely understand all of the magnitude of what's going on in here, Lord. But I thank you. I thank you that you've given us your spirit as a deposit, Lord. Father, help us see that we are those that are engaged, that we await this beautiful union with you in, in body and in spirit. Lord, that it's, this world is just simply a foretaste. These relationships, all the things we experience, including our pain, is just a foretaste preparing us for what it's going to be like to be with you. Father, help us see sex in this light, Father. Give us the freedom to throw off all the other definitions that we have, Lord, um, that we would see these things as opportunities um, to run to you, Father, for what we were truly made for. We love you. In your name, amen.